0: Hey, Life Can. Uh, Roger here. I'm the Director of Student and Adult Ministries. So glad that you're joining us, whether you're a brand new or returning listener. Welcome. If you're a brand new listener, be sure to follow, like, subscribe, all that stuff so that you can get uh, more of the podcasts we put out, which, uh, you know, we put out sermons and other stuff too, which uh, we should have another uh, extra coming in a little bit. But... If you want to participate in the work that God is doing in this church and this community, and, and He's up to a lot, like I remind you guys every week, uh, you can participate in so many ways. But one of the ways to do that is by giving. So head over to our Life Church Can forward slash Give page to be a part of that. Uh, but we are in our Imago Day series, which we've been in for the past couple of weeks. It's all about the Imago Day and how it should inform our identity. And today we're up for a bit of a tougher conversation sometimes uh, because we're talking about the image of God and sexuality. But I think you're going to hear the heart uh, and desire behind Pastor uh, Jared's message um, and what he's trying to communicate. So give that a listen and, and I'll catch up with you in just a minute.
1: Amen. Good to worship with you. You may have a seat we're going to worship a little bit more later on. Welcome to Life Canton. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you are with us today. Um, we are in a series called Imago Dei. We've been talking about the image of God. That's just a fancy Latin phrase for the image of God. We're talking about that in terms of identity, which is all about a way of being more than a way of doing that 'll make sense a little bit more later on, but I also want to warn you just one last time if you didn 't hear Roger at the beginning or if you didn 't uh, get the email or if you are not on our social media, uh, we are going to be talking about identity as it relates to sexuality today. So if you do have younger ones in the room and you 're not sure you 're ready for them to hear this message just yet, uh, you can make those arrangements up to fifth grade. We uh, have life kids available for you if you want them to stay seated in here, that's fine too. I will say this, uh, my, my son is in fifth grade and he is 11 and, uh, and we've already had this conversation last year. And so anything that I'm about to say, I feel comfortable talking about with him. So if that gives you some kind of a barometer for, for where we're gonna go today. Um, we are talking about this, it's a, it's a challenging topic um, and we're going to be discussing it first by our position paper And if you're not familiar with what that is, uh, for the last several weeks now, and even back into November of 2020, we started these position papers. They're basically papers on a little bit harder topics, people wanting to know, like where does the church stand on some of these matters? And so we created these position papers. We created one on identity, which is available to you already. We did that one a couple weeks ago. This one is on sexuality. If you want to read along with me, uh, you could do that. If you have a phone, a smartphone, you can go to life.com churchcantonorg slash now. Lifechurchcanton.org slash now. And if you scroll down a little bit, you're going to see both the identity paper as well as the sexuality paper. And all of that's available to you. I also want to say this. I am not going to be able to answer every single question that you have. I'm just not. In the limited time that I have, you're probably going to come away with even more questions than answers. And all of that is okay. And all of that is normal. Okay, so what we need to do with that, though, is continue to have good, healthy, civil, respectful, trustworthy conversations. This is just one medium, me talking to you, you sitting and listening. Uh, That's only a part of the way this conversation starts, but that's not where it ends. And so what questions you have, uh, continue to take those into One-on-one conversations, one-on-two conversations, or if you want to, it is Groups Sunday. If you want to be part of a group and you want to talk about some of these matters there too, uh, to do so in a safe environment, you could do that as well. Have conversations. Don't walk away with more questions and then develop bitterness because I said something that you didn't understand or I didn't say something that you wished I would have said. Does that make sense? So I'm going to take a risk here and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to put my email address on the screen if you are experiencing pain and confusion when it comes to the conversation of sexuality, would you reach out to me? And I might not be the person that you ultimately end up meeting with. Uh, I might be able to direct you to somebody else, but we want to make sure that this is an open-ended conversation and this is just the beginning, okay? Okay. Uh, I also want to say this one last thing. When we talk about sexuality, sometimes we sort of lump it all together. Uh, We talk about sexuality and gender. I am just talking about sexuality today. I am not talking about gender. That might be for another day. Now, I'm going to go to the position paper. I'm going to read it word for word. And if you want to follow along uh, from the now page, you can do that as well. We live in a highly sexualized culture. And the message we receive is that our sexuality is a defining component of our identity. Therefore, sexuality has become an idol, something that gives us identity instead of God. We know humanity was created in the image of God, the imago Dei, and humans by nature are sexual beings. The imago Dei in humanity is a declaration of who we are and whose we are, and that includes our sexuality. However, since the beginning, that image has become and continues to be distorted and desecrated by the adversary of God. How do we reconcile something designed for our good with the reality that sexuality has become defiled? Life canton will reclaim our identity in Jesus, and our sexuality is part of that. Every aspect of our sexuality, that includes sexual practice and attraction, will be redeemed in Jesus if we submit to him. All humanity is sinful and falls short of God's standard, but through God's grace in Christ and by his death, we have a new identity as children of God. This transforms our sexuality. We are sexual beings and created to enjoy sex. However, sex is not the ultimate goal of being human. We're called to be in a relationship, uh, sorry, we're called to be in relationships with one another, but we believe there is no biblical mandate to be married. There is a biblical mandate to honor God in our sexuality. Sexual practice. Sex is to be experienced within the boundaries of a God-honoring marriage between a man and a woman who submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. All of us should endeavor to live up to this purpose of sexual practice, married or not. We recognize that all of us are still pursuing this standard of God's plan for sexual practice. And this pursuit can be an incredibly complex and challenging journey. Those who practice sex outside of a God-honoring marriage and those who engage in homosexual sex are not worse than or other than any individual who fails to live up to, the, to God's standard for sexual practice. We will not shame and condemn anyone, but instead help all to reclaim their identity that is being transformed in Jesus to experience belonging and redemption. When we are humble, compassionate, and hospitable with each other, we create the environment for transformation through the Holy Spirit. Sexual attraction. Sexual attraction, whether to the same sex or opposite sex, isn't sinful, but it is something we must all submit to Christ. And our sexual practice must reflect God's plan and purpose. The ultimate goal of submitting our sexuality to Christ is the transformation of our entire identity as children of God. This ongoing process is best done in compassionate communities where the standard of God's plan for our sexuality is held up and the environment to encounter Jesus is created so that all can reclaim their identity in Jesus. As we've often done with our position papers, I just want to remind us to take an opportunity to take an account of what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what emotions you're processing as you hear those things. And that's just one sheet. <laughs> there's a whole lot there that's, that's discussed and there's a whole lot that's not there that maybe we want to discuss. And all week long, I've been wrestling through, well, what am I supposed to talk about after reading that? What needs to be said? What should we unpack here? Should I present a whole biblical overview of sexual ethics? Should I address the six or seven verses that talk about homosexuality? which, by the way, are almost always often taken out of context in order to demean and degrade people with same-sex attraction? Or what about the hundreds of verses about heterosexuality? Should I talk about all of those things? Or should we just focus on the topic of sex outside of marriage and just hone in on that topic? Where should we go? There's a million different directions that I could go with this talk in the limited amount of time that I have. Now, here's the thing. No matter what, In my experience as a pastor, having given lots of talks about sex and sexuality, every single time, every single message that I've ever given, I have always had at least one person come up to me afterward and say, you were too lenient on sexual sin. And at the same time, I've always had another person come up to me and say, you're too condemning in your tone. How is that possible? I gave one message and I had two completely opposing views and bits of feedback. Here's why. It's because everybody is coming at this topic with their own perspective and their own background. Here's the thing. You have already decided in your head what you want me to say. You have. You've already decided what you want to hear today. And you're getting ready even for that. And here's the thing, that's actually not bad. And it's not wrong. That's not me calling you out. I'm actually just stating a reality because the reality is, is we all have our own lenses that have been formed by our experiences. The way in which we see the world, the way in which we see the topic of sexuality. It's already been formed in us. We can't help it. And so it has caused us to decide what we already want to hear or not hear. What I'm asking you to do today is to submit your lenses to God. To actually maybe put on the lenses of somebody who does, doesn't have your experience and begin to enter into empathy and humility and compassion as we talk about this. So here's what I ultimately decided where to go. Answering the simple and yet profound question, what would Jesus do? Right. What, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus talk about? What's the Holy Spirit leading me to say? And so what I arrived at is talking about a way forward. What's the way forward for all of us? I think the church, in my experience and in the past, I don't know what your story is, has done a whole big job bringing about more shame and condemnation I want to talk about a way forward. So one of the passages that's referenced in our position paper is John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. If you have a Bible, you own a Bible, you can go there with me. Otherwise, the words will be on the screens. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. That's our gift to you. Just let us know. We'll help you out. But here we are in John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd sued and gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. So on one hand, uh, we could treat this as a story about sexual sin and how Jesus deals with sexual sin. And on the other hand, this could be a story about the religious leaders and the Pharisees and those who have this sort of self-centered moral superiority. And we could talk about that. Where do you identify? Do you identify maybe more with the crowd? you have a sense of moral superiority? Or maybe your story is a little bit more like the woman. You've been accused. Maybe you've been in sexual sin. Probably most of us, or some of us at least, are like, well, no, there's a third character. There's Jesus. I I think I identify more with Jesus in this story. I I think I would do what Jesus did in this story. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Let's talk about the crowd. It's probably where I find myself most of the time. And here's the thing. Before we judge them too harshly, they shouldn't have done that. They should have been more loving. Here's the thing. They were actually doing what they were supposed to do. They were simply being obedient to how they understood their scriptures, the Old Testament, which we as Christians, we got to deal with. We got to figure out where we stand with all of that. Their call was to bring about capital punishment because of her sin, because of her act of adultery. They were simply doing what they were told to do by their scriptures. And they didn't have the electric chair back then, so they had a whole bunch of stones. Somebody's found for a capital offense, sexual sin. You stone them. You put them to death. She deserved this. And they used the scriptures to challenge Jesus on this. Scriptures that Jesus would have known. They call him teacher. They call him rabbi. He's just as much an expert in the scriptures, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as much as they were. So they challenge him with their own literature. And here's the thing. Jesus' response, it could have just been, no, 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 we're not going to do that. But that would have discredited him as a rabbi. Jesus actually permits it. He permits the stoning. Did you you see that? Before we go to the end of the story, Jesus says, All right. All right. He actually says, Yeah, go for it. Go for it. Tell you what, let's up the ante a little bit. Let's change the game. We'll just, a little enhancement to this whole stoning festival here. Here we go. Uh, The person who's never sinned, you get to throw the first stone. He challenges their moral superiority. But he doesn't change the text. <laughs> this is what morally superior people do. How often can we relate to this? We do what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees took the text, and they know the text, and they used it to trap Jesus. They used it to bring about condemnation, to bring about death for this woman. Here's the thing. In my experience, I, I've probably dealt more with people who identify with the crowd than with the woman. In my experience, nothing's changed. Christians, because they're not really sure what to do with the Old Testament, and that seems a little weird and outdated, they absolutely still know what to do with the New Testament, and so they bring New Testament scriptures to the pastor who they feel needs to be more direct and more clear and, in a word, more condemning. And so, What they have done in conversations that I've been a part of is to say, hey, hey pastor, here's the thing. You don't don't seem like you're clear in your message about sexuality. I want to show you Romans 1. And so they go to Romans 1, and they list off all of Paul's lists of things to do and not do, all of the horrible sexual acts, including same-sex acts. And then they say, see, see, look, Paul's clear, Paul's direct, In fact, this is how Paul ends what he's saying after his whole big long list. He says, they know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die. Yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them well. And my response is typically, hey, I love that we're looking at the scriptures. Let's do that. Let's read the scriptures together. Tell you what, I'll I'll join you. Let's open up Romans 1 together. Let's look through that together. and, And tell you what, let's actually keep going. Let's go to Romans 2, verse 1. Let's keep on reading. And when we read Romans 2, verse 1, it says, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very same things. And that's not meant to be sort of a drop-the-mic gotcha moment. That, that's not at all what I'm trying to do. You would think that the conversation would change, would alter its tone just a little bit. But here's the thing, is that a lot of times these people in these conversations will say, no, no, I don't do those same things. I, that, that's the whole point, Jared. I don't do that. And this is what we do as American Christians, is we elevate singled-out matters to distance ourselves from people who feel they are on the margins as justification to not have to do life with them. That's what morally superior people do. I'm over here, you're other than, you're less than. I I don't understand what you're going through. I'm just glad I don't have to deal with that. And then we sit here from a distance and begin to judge. But that's not the point of Paul's lists. And it's it's not even the point of Romans 2 to call out people who make lists. The point of Romans 1 and 2 is to take us all the way to Romans chapter 3, verses 23, which is referenced in our position paper, which says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And I could stop there, and we could all wallow in shame. Or I could read verse 24 as well. You need me to read verse 24 today. Yet God, in His grace, freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through you getting all your stuff together. He did this through you figuring out all of your sexuality and what it means. He did this through you being a heterosexual and not being attracted to the same sex No, he did this through Christ Jesus, not you. When he freed us from the penalty for our sins. You're created in the image of God. It's a way of being. It has nothing to do with your doing. Our doing flows out of our being. Your being is freed in Christ by his grace. Period. And this grace is what informs Paul's understanding of Jesus. And this grace is what informs Jesus' behavior in this situation with this woman and with this crowd, with the morally superior. And what happens is they begin to drop their stones and walk away. Jesus is still left. What he had said was, all right, whoever has never sinned cast the first stone. Well, guess what? That's Jesus. He's never sinned. Now is the opportunity for Jesus to pick up the stone and to carry out the death sentence for this woman. But he doesn't. Because he knows she's created in the image of God. And her life is just about her being more than it is about her doing. He takes the scriptures. He uses it to point out the moral superior. And then he turns it to life. Scriptures aren't supposed to bring death. They're supposed to bring life. And this is what Paul recognizes when he speaks to the Roman church. Let's talk about those who identify with the woman it's important to understand some of the dynamics that are going on here this woman she's by herself I don't know about you but I'm wondering where's the dude like where's the guy she was in the act of adultery she wasn't doing that by herself there's somebody else there and I think it's safe to say it wasn't another woman because then they both would have been sitting there so I think it's safe to assume there's a man involved in this situation where's he Well, in that context, it was almost always the woman who was held responsible for sexual sin. I'm not sure much has changed in our modern day either. Especially after plenty of conversations with some women and their experiences. And here's the thing, we don't know the details of this woman's life, we don't know her backstory, we don't know where it goes from here. We do know that women were treated as second-class citizens. Often they were used and abused sexually. So we don't know if this was a consensual act of adultery or not, or if she was forced into this. And yet here she is, pulled, literally pulled from the act of adultery, which means she's most likely naked, exposed humiliated in front of a crowd. This is a public execution. Here she is. She's got to be thinking. Even after the accusers drop their stones and walk away, it's not all over for her. She's got to be thinking this situation, this encounter is going to follow me for the rest of my life. The shame, the exposure, the humiliation that she's experiencing. This is going to be her identity. Every time she walks across the marketplace or in the village and somebody sees her, I I remember that woman. I remember what they did to her. This is going to define her. And so she's got to be wondering. Certainly, Jesus feels the same way about me too. But he asks, where are your accusers? No, Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And Jesus kneels in the dirt, which for you and I as American readers of the Bible might just pass on through and not think much of that. It's a little weird. Like, what's he, does he have like a weird form of ADHD like he's like just distracted and so he goes in the dirt and starts drawing pictures like what's going on there this is actually a huge significant moment for a rabbi for a person in authority to kneel down next to somebody who is on trial essentially for a public execution for them to kneel in the dirt is a massive sign of humility and submission to the point where he's actually joining the accused. Here's why that's significant. I don't know what your story is. I don't know if you've been used and abused sexually and maybe you didn't even get a say in the matter. I don't know if you've been consensual in sex outside of marriage or if that even brings any kind of guilt or shame for you. I don't know if you experience same-sex attraction. But no matter what, for those of you who feel like you are on the margins in regards to your sexuality, Jesus joins you, kneels in the dust. With you. That's where God is. He's with you. And here's the thing, all of those categories that I mentioned, that's not who you are. That's actually not your identity. You are more than your sexuality. You are more than your sexual practice. You are more even than your sexual attraction. That's not who you are. You are more than that. And I would even add this, for those of you who identify yourself with rules, with abstinence with celibacy you are even more than your virginity that's not who you are either there is more to who you are here's what i want to say look at this last phrase of jesus go and sin no more what does that mean why does jesus say that oftentimes i've heard this preached as go and sin no more go and don't sin don't make any more mistakes don't live in brokenness. Is that what it means? Go and don't sin anymore? Let me ask you, is she going to go and sin again? Absolutely she is. Uh, Maybe not sexually, but she's going to sin just like the crowd is going to go away and sin as well. All of them are going to sin. All have fallen short of God's glorious standard. All have sinned. She's going to go and sin. So why is Jesus saying go and sin no more when he knows full well she's going to sin again in some way, shape, or form? Or maybe it means more than just go and don't make any more mistakes. See, so I believe Jesus is calling this woman higher, calling this woman to something more, speaking to her identity to say go and don't identify anymore with this sexual encounter. This will not define you. Instead, define yourself, find your identity, or I could say, reclaim your identity in Jesus. Go and don't let this scenario, this encounter, this accusation, don't let it follow you everywhere you go. Don't agree with the voice of the accuser. You are who you are because of who Jesus is. And here's why that's powerful. Here's why this matters because you too, Life Canton, you are not condemned. You are not accused. In fact, Jesus becomes the accused on your behalf. That's how much he loves you. The Imago Dei is about your being, not about your doing. You are a child of God that's your title that's your identity so what is the way forward I want to give us some items to think about as we go throughout this next week first of all for those of you who identify more with the crowd put down the stone put it down grow in empathy don't stand over here and point, but instead create an environment, a safe environment for relationship, for conversation, for openness. Begin to understand where somebody's coming from. Do life with people. See, it's really easy to pick up stones and to get ready to throw them when you have nothing to do with that person, when you have done zero life with that person when you have no idea what their story is, it's super easy to pick up a stone. Put down the stone. But don't walk away. Kneel in the dirt. Get into the dust with the accused, with those who feel other than, who feel less than. That's actually that's a biblical mandate. To join those who are on the outside. Why? Because we've put them there. Here's the thing. We can't just be reactive to this. We also have to learn to be proactive. Be proactive. For those of you who are parents or who are educators or you have young people regularly in your presence, be proactive. Talk to young people about sex and sexuality. I mentioned I talked to my son about this when he was 10, right before he turned 11. I, we were having a conversation one day, and he's like, uh, I know that I came out of mommy's tummy, um, so, but what, like, what did you do? <laughs> and I said, well, well I helped. Um, and he said, very serious, he said, yep, yeah, but like how? I'm like, tell you what. We'll go on a camping trip someday, and we'll talk about this. And that's what we did. We went away, and we didn't talk about sex for an entire week, but we talked about it for a moment. And he asked questions. And here's the thing, I would encourage you, I I don't know that I did it perfectly or well or completely, but I know that I used anatomically correct terminology, right? Like, don't make up weird words about body parts, that's not helpful, I tried to maintain a a consistent, steady, emotional tone. I tried to not talk too much, but just leave space for questions anytime he had a question. Like, okay, let me stop there. I know I just said a lot. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand what that... But I also talked about the beauty and the joy of sex as well. That's important. I know I didn't cover all of that here today or in the position paper. And we also talked about some of the risks and some of the challenges. We talked about rape and sexual assault. We talked about consent. We even talked about same-sex attraction. And I tried not to force my ideas, my perspectives, even my theological understanding about it. I just said there are all of these different kinds of views I need you to understand that this is what's out there. And let's talk about it. Let's have more questions. To allow him to grow, to learn. I, I don't know, maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's too risky. I'm not sure. Maybe I'll find out later. But here's one thing that has been helpful, what I've come to find is this resource. There's tons of resources out there that are really good. There's also tons of bad resources. I want to direct you to a good resource, fulleryouthinstitute.org. It's going to be on the, page, on the screen there, fulleryouthinstitute.org, and then keyword uh, sex. You're going to get pages and pages of tons of good resources for, for those of you who are parents, educators, youth leaders, uh, for how to talk in a, in a God-honoring, healthy way about sex and sexuality. Lastly, you are not condemned. doesn't really feel like an action step, does it? Remember, the Imago Dei is about being, not about doing. For those of you who identify more with the woman, I don't know what your story is, but you are not condemned. I do specifically want to I guess, pastorally speak to those of you who experience same-sex attraction, whether you identify as gay or lesbian, bisexual. I don't know what your story is. And I have sat with and listened to many gay, lesbian, bisexual individuals, and I guarantee you every one of their stories is unique. I've sat with their family members, their friends, their advocates and allies, and listened. And what I have found to be consistent is a call for clarity from the church, as well as a radical love. And it gets hard and it gets messy. And there's all kinds of stories out there. I can remember specifically a very vivid story several years ago, sitting in my office at my last church, across from a 16-year-old boy who was gay. And the reason he was in my office, along with his mom, is because he had many failed suicide attempts. Because he was gay. And the reason he was brought to this position, partly was because his father, his mom and his dad, were divorced. His father lived in another state. His father was a pastor. And his father called him regularly, weekly, to remind him, hey, you're going to hell unless you can get this figured out. And now he's sitting in my office, recounting his experiences, sharing about the the struggle of having his attraction to the same gender for several years and trying to get rid of it and being told by the church to pray it away and then being recommended to restorative therapy or shock therapy where he's shown images of the same gender and then anytime he might get aroused, he's shocked. He's inflicted pain on him. Does that sound like Jesus to you? And he figured, well, if the church thinks I'm going to hell, and if my dad, who's a pastor, thinks I'm going to hell, why don't I just speed up the process? I've had way too many conversations with morally superior people who have all of the rules, all of the right things to say to this young man, but never once have they sat in this office across from a young man who is ready to be done with his life because this is what he's been dealt with. What am I supposed to do in that situation? Should we should we open up all of the scriptures and I should just reinforce what his dad has already told him? Should I just reinforce what he believes the church already believes about him? Or is our God a God of life, not death? And as he's sitting there and weeping, he asks me, "Pastor, is it true? Am I going to hell?" I said, I don't know about all that. But here's what I'm pretty sure about. I'm pretty sure that God loves you. I'm pretty sure that you were created in his image. And because of that, I'm pretty sure that he has a purpose for your life. I think he wants you to live today. And if you've never heard this from God or from anybody in the church I want you to hear this today. I love you. And I think I want you to live too. What's better to do in that situation? I don't know if I handled it perfectly. I don't know if God's like, nope, nope, that wasn't it. You should have said this, should have done that, shouldn't have said this. I'm willing to risk it. That's his story. That's just one story. Just last week, I met an individual person who had a different story. Young woman who grew up with same-sex attraction and struggled with it and called it that, called it a struggle. I just began to ask her, like, can you tell me more about that? What did that look like for you? What did that mean for you? And she ultimately said, I feel like God delivered me from that. And she said this phrase that I thought was incredibly helpful, especially in relation to our identity position paper, that thoughts and feelings are fleeting. She said, thoughts and feelings are meant to be indicators, but not dictators. I love that line. She has a different story. I asked her, what would you say to individuals who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual in our church? What would you say to them? I want to read what she said. I would say that you are lovable and loved by Jesus right now. He wants to walk with you right now. I pray that you will seek to encounter Jesus and find community here with safe, genuine people who love you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your story is if you're gay, lesbian, bisexual, or even if you engage in sex outside of marriage. I don't know if you feel like you're going to belong here. I don't. Maybe you hear our position on sexuality and you're like, ah, yeah, I can't, I can't be part of this church. I understand. Or maybe you hear our position, you are where you are, And you're willing to wrestle through the complexities of what that all means. And we're going to walk this journey together. Either way, one thing is for certain. If you are gay, lesbian, bisexual, you have sex outside of marriage, we will never tell you you can't be here. We'll never say it. I recognize it gets more complex when you talk about staff and leadership and pastors and marriage. I understand all of that. But we will never tell you to leave. For those of you who this is your first Sunday here, you're like, whoa, this is more than I bargained for. I hope that you understand the character and the heart of Jesus today and that you encounter him as well. And if you don't know Jesus, here's the thing that I know about him. He takes us the way we are, all of our mess, all of us. And he makes us into something beautiful for his kingdom. We're going to sing a song about that in just a second. But I want you to take this as an an opportunity to pray commit your life to Jesus, to invite him into your life, and to allow the Holy Spirit to begin the work of transformation within you.
0: So, like I said, uh, wherever you are, I hope you heard our heart behind that, uh, the heart that we are all called to reflect the image of God with our sexuality, and also Our desire to welcome and love those from all walks of life, um, wherever you are, with this issue. Uh, Like Pastor Jared said, uh, I think really powerfully, we will never tell you that you don't belong. Uh, You belong to God, and so you belong to us. But if there's anything you're going through, whether it's something to do with what we just talked about or anything at all, and you need prayer or support, uh, we have a lot of ways for you to receive that. Um, You can reach out to request prayer via uh, the the uh, Now page in our Connect card or just in person. Also, this week was Groups Sunday and uh, we have signups open right now for life groups to join where you can receive uh, support and care in community. So be sure to take advantage of the opportunity. But I hope you have a fantastic week. I hope you feel the love of God this week. Um, I hope you see him moving and working in your life and we will catch up with you next week. See ya.